south of the Mason-Dixon. This is the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. Here is your host, Brian McClanahan. Welcome back to the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. This is your host, Brian McClanahan, and this is episode 241, covering the week of November 30th through December 4th, 2020. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, like our Facebook page, and subscribe to our YouTube page. You can find all those social media accounts at our webpage, abbevilleinstitute.org. That's A-B-B-E-V-I-L-L-E, institute.org. While you're there, give us an email address. We'll give you a free ebook, Exploring the Southern Tradition, written by 20 Abbeville Institute scholars. It's a great gift, free of charge. You can also purchase that book if you want at Amazon.com, if you just look up the title, if you want a hard copy of the book. But you get it free of charge in ebook format simply for giving us an email address. And, of course, when you get that email address, when you give it to us, you'll get our Daily Dose of Gixie, Monday through Friday. You'll also have a communication with the Institute. We like to send out emails. We like to let you know things that are going on. For example, on December 15th, we have our first Zoom conference, which is a big deal. We're going to do more of these in 2021. It's one of the projects that we have that we're working on. And, of course, if you're on that email list, you'll get an email reminder about it. We've got this coming up. We only have so many seats for these seminars, so you're going to want to get in on that. And being on the email list will get you in the door. Now, you can also click on that support tab at the Abbeville Institute. If you want to support what we're doing, you like our podcasts, our website, our conferences, our videos, which I'll talk about in a little bit, you can support the Institute by simply clicking on that support tab. You've got a way to donate monthly, annually, or a one-time gift. You can Click on that Shop tab under that. You can buy an Abbeville Institute shirt, hat, golf towel, fleece jacket. All those things are there. And, of course, that supports the Institute. You can click on that Amazon Smile button on the webpage. So if you shop at Amazon through Amazon Smile, you support the Abbeville Institute as your preferred charity. So we get a few pennies every time you purchase a book or some other item at Amazon.com. And, of course, everybody shops at Amazon, or most people shop at Amazon, I should say. And so you can uh, support the Institute painlessly as you shop at Amazon. You can help us that way as well. So we exist on your generous contributions alone. The end of the year is coming up. We've got uh, a lot of people are making their tax preparations. So you're going to want to support us if you can. At this point, you get a, a donation is tax deductible to the full extent of the law. So Check your spam folder. Check your check your other folders. When you make a donation online, this is something I need to mention. When you make that donation online, you do get a receipt for it. So check your folders to make sure you get that if it doesn't come directly to your box. It should, but uh, sometimes it goes to some of the other folders on your email client. If you like what we do, also download our free mobile application. It uh, is the Abbeville Institute on the go. You get the lectures. You get the podcast. You get access to the website free of charge. Uh, share this material out on social media, like us on Facebook, do all those things you can do to let people know you're interested in what the Abbeville Institute has to do for the South. And of course, we appreciate all the support. Uh, we appreciate everything that you've been doing for us. We'll have a couple of more podcasts this year, and then we'll wrap it up for the end of the year. But um, it has been a great year. We've got all kinds of stuff going on, all kinds of things in the future. I've been promising these things for a couple of years now, and we're finally starting to get enough traction to do these things. And so I'm just going to start with one of the first things that, uh, one of the first projects I mentioned years ago, a couple of years ago, we were trying to work on, and that was short six-minute videos. We produced one uh, about a month ago, a little over a month ago, Phil Lee's monument, uh, I'm sorry, video on Confederate monuments. And it is, it has been a great success. 
Uh, and so just uh, yesterday, or the day before yesterday, we released the second video, and it features yours truly, on the Gettysburg Address. Now, we were aiming to put that out last week because, of course, that was the anniversary of the Gettysburg Address took place last week. We wanted to get it out then. A couple of days more of editing. We couldn't get it out that day, but it is out now. And uh, I'm, I'm happy with it. I think it's a, it's a great rebuttal to this Lincoln myth that circulates around uh, frequently. I mean, this is where people, conservatives, leftists, uh, it doesn't really matter. They believe in this mythical Lincoln that somehow was doing some great work in leading the United States into the deaths of nearly a million Americans. I mean, if Donald Trump is a criminal for, uh, and this is what the left says, he's a criminal because of COVID and 278,000 deaths, what does that make Abraham Lincoln, who uh, was president with a million American deaths? I mean, how does that factor in? And a lot of these people were civilians. They weren't Soldiers. We know that there are about 600 to 800,000. It depends on you know, what numbers you're looking at. Soldiers that died north and south during this war. And the war was really unnecessary. I mean, it, secession could have taken place. You would have lost seven states, at least initially. Uh, the United States still existed. The government still existed. The army and the navy still existed. The financial houses all still existed. You had slave states in the Union. You could have kept the Union and maybe negotiated a peace or come up with some way to, uh, to uh, have the Union reformed at some point, but it didn't require war. Once Lincoln decided to send troops into the South, send troops into South Carolina without a declaration of war, well, that's when the other states seceded from the Union, of course. So Lincoln's decision kicked off a great big war. And I think that's something that people don't get. People say, well, South fired first shots. Lincoln actually decided to provision both Fort Sumter and Fort Pickens. Fort Pickens is the, is the key to it all. It's not Fort Sumter. It's Fort Pickens. The funny thing is Lincoln didn't, have, didn't even know how to spell Fort Sumter. He put a P in it, some of his letters. But anyways, uh, Pickens is the key because Pickens was provisioned before Sumter. And there was some conflict down there. And of course, while James Buchanan was president, there was no war. In fact, you know, he had uh, essentially left the situation alone in Florida. People don't know where, where Fort Pickens is. It's in Pensacola, Florida. It's still there. It's guarding the mouth of Pensacola Bay. And you have that. There were actually three forts in that area. And Pickens was one of the most important. Uh, you can go, well, and it's not destroyed by a hurricane. I think one of the last hurricanes went through, they had to close the, the area down. It's a beautiful part of, uh, of the panhandle of Florida. But when you, uh, the Fort Pickens was provisioned and occupied, and there was some skirmishing there, but Lincoln knew what he was doing. In fact, he writes in his, he's written in his diary. He, people have talked about this, uh, that he's written in letters that this was something he intended to have happen. He thought when they provisioned the fort, these forts, you would have conflict. You would have it. It was, it was going to happen. There was no question about it. So when Lincoln stands up and, and says the Gettysburg Address and, and does that, which, of course, a couple of northern newspapers panned. One called it a flat and dishwatery utterance. The other called it silly one Chicago paper and a, a Pennsylvania paper. Now, of course, you could say, well, these are Democrat papers. Still, 
Northerners thought it was awful. Lincoln himself didn't think it was going to make much of an impact. In fact, Edward Everett's speech, which preceded Lincoln's speech, was thought to be the better speech that day. Uh, and you know, Lincoln scribbled this thing on the train, gave it, and of course now it's become like an American, uh, you know, a Bible, so to speak. I mean, the people on the right, neoconservatives, people on the left, they cite this thing as you know, this is the true meaning of America, the proposition nation. But we know that that's not the case. We know that Lincoln distorted the meaning of the Declaration. In fact, the historian Gary Wills, who's uh, by no means a conservative, said that Lincoln revolutionized the revolution at that point. So in, in other words, he was making up history in 1863, not, not uh, you know, reaffirming the founding, as is often said. This is what the Straussians, the West Coast Straussians say. This is what the neoconservatives say. People like Victor Davis Hanson and others who are so critical of the South. And when you say that, when Lincoln said, you know, of course, government of the people, by the people, and for the people, well, what people is he talking about? Certainly the South voted in popular conventions in larger numbers and supported the American War for Independence. Is that not government of the people, by the people, for the people? So if you watch the video, six minutes, the idea of these videos, again, is to combat things like PragerU, which, of course, are horrible for the South. I mean, they do some good work on some of the other issues that really don't have to do with history. But once they start diving into history and they get into Lincoln and they get into the South, they do a terrible job with it. And so that was the whole idea of these videos. And we've got more coming. The next one's going to be on uh, Tom DiLorenzo video on Lincoln himself. We've got one coming on John C. Calhoun. So we've got more coming and we're going to do more. But all of that requires financial support. You know, we can't do all these things without money. They do take cash. We have some other projects we're working on. Some really great things, are, I think, are on the horizon in 2021. So if you, if you can open up your wallet for $5, $10, whatever you got. I mean, if you want to give us more, we, we'd gladly take more. But if all you got is $5, bucks, we'll, I mean, heck, we'll, we'll lovingly take $5 because that is... Uh, if that's all you can afford, we'll take it. I often tell people, you know, if you get a, an expensive cup of coffee a month, it's five bucks. Can you skip one cup of coffee every month to give it to the Abbeville Institute? That's $60 a year, and that does a lot. I mean, you, you'd be su surprised what $60 can do for us. Uh, so, you know, that's great. Of course, if you can spend more, we'd, we'd gladly take more because we do have expensive things that we have to uh, to pay for all the time. And Again, nothing that we do is free. It's uh, free to you, but not free to us. So uh, please consider those tax-deductible donations. And these videos are a part we're very proud of this year that we've been able to do. Uh, we recorded them a couple years ago, and they sat because of some behind-the-scenes things that have been going on. We, uh, we had a, uh, a, a one, one person who was going to be working with those tragically died, and you know that. So we, we had some some issues with that. So. Um, we, uh, we we're thankful that we can get them out now, and it has taken some funding to do it, but uh, this is something we want to continue to do. We're not just going to do a few of them and then stop. We want to do more of these things. So if you like them, if you think the videos are great, well, please make a contribution. And on that note, when you look at the one of the other pieces we had this week on Lincoln itself, um, the piece is uh, Mr. Lincoln's Law Speech by Vito Mussamelli. And Vito's a, a very nice man. Uh, is a, you know has a legal background and wrote this really interesting piece on a speech that Lincoln gave that has never been recorded in what well, 
Lincoln had to kind of scribble what he what he meant, but there are well, there's one newspaper account of it, and it's not word for word. It was delivered in 1856, and what Vito does in this particular speech is point out the hypocrisy of Lincoln in this speech when he was fully supportive of secession during the Mexican War. But then when you get to 1856 and 1858 and 1860, He's not supportive of secession any longer. And of course, he also points out that Lincoln knew what he was doing. Uh, He knew what he was doing when it came to uh, the action in Fort Sumter and, of course, also Fort Pickens. He also points out Lincoln's hypocrisy, or at least this this, this Lincoln myth that somehow Lincoln wasn't a racist. Uh, Lincoln was. In fact, he, as he says... uh, Vito Musumeli says this. Lincoln knew his audience. He couched everything in the superiority of the white race. He did it all the time. And so he gives a quote. Nor is it any argument that we are superior and the Negro inferior. That is, that has that he has one talent while we have ten. Let the Negro possess the little he has in independence. If he has but one talent, he should be permitted to keep the little he has. But slavery will endure no test of reason or logic. The repeal of the Missouri Compromise was by violence. And then Vito points out something interesting. He says, really? Hadn't Congress in 1854 voted freely on the Kansas-Nebraska bill, not to Lincoln? For him, it was a violation of both law and the sacred obligations of honor. He was drunk with his emotional tirade. The slaves' powers, the slave powers' violence, Lincoln claimed, was both in Lawrence, destroyed for the crime of freedom, and in Washington, where the fearless Sumner is beaten to insensibility. Of course, he says he left out Pottawatomie, where John Brown murdered five innocent men before their families. This threesome had indignity. I'm sorry. This this threesome had ignited the country. Excuse me. So it's it is. Certainly interesting to point out Lincoln's hypocrisy and Lincoln's selective use of history, which is what the Gettysburg addresses. That's why I titled the piece The Gettysburg Fairy Tale. The point of these Lincoln pieces is to punch holes in this Lincoln myth. And somebody asked me somewhere on social media, hey, can you can you explain the Lincoln myth for dummies? It was pretty simple, uh, really, and I, I'm not talking down to this audience, of course, but you know, if I had to say what the Lincoln myth is in, a, in summary, it is the idea that there is an American nation created with the proposition in the Declaration of Independence that all men are created equal. I mean, that's the Lincoln myth. So we have the central authority that's there to enforce some type of social justice. Now, that would have been news of the founding generation to a man. First of all, most of them didn't believe that we would have a nation. Second of all, this idea that all men are created equal, that was equal under the law, and of course they excluded others in that. But this would have been news to those men. And so the Lincoln myth is somehow that the president is the most important office in the United States, that we have a national government, the states are irrelevant essentially. Now that national government has a charge, a higher law charge, right? So if there's something, there's something morally higher than the Constitution... It's the job of the government to enforce that. That's the Lincoln myth. Uh, it's this uh, 
national greatness conservatism. And you see it not just in Lincoln, but also in people like Teddy Roosevelt, who was by the never called a conservative, by the way, uh, other than I mean, people would say, well, conservation is conservative. We're conserving land. But Roosevelt was always considered to be a progressive. Uh, you see the national greatness line in people like Woodrow Wilson and Franklin Roosevelt. So you see, Lincoln is a, is a, there's a connection between Lincoln and all these other presidencies that are aggressive, both at home and abroad. You see it with the Lincoln administration. You see it with the Republican Party at this particular time. In fact, that diplomatic part of the Republican Party is often lost in much of the history of the party, which is unfortunate because uh, you look at what they thought. They thought that this new revolution that they recognize as a, as, a, as a revolution. The Republican Party in 1861 was the leftist party, and they recognized it as a revolution that should extend around the globe. And they started talking about you know intervening in other parts of the world to bring this American liberty and democracy to other places of the world. They certainly talked about it. And that became, of course, Wilsonian interventionism, Roosevelt interventionism. This is what it was. And I think that we, we miss that part of Lincoln, too. And our Reconstruction, the idea was to consolidate the United States, to eliminate the ability of the states to present any obstacles to federal power. That is the Lincoln myth. Because the Lincoln myth is just false. And Lincoln made stuff up all the time, particularly about the founding. Now, he's not the first. James Wilson of Pennsylvania did the exact same thing. But Lincoln, of course, during his time as president and making great speeches, I mean, there's no doubt about it, Lincoln made great speeches. So did Barack Obama, made great speeches. But they're full of half-truths and lies and historical distortions. So that's the issue with the Lincoln myth. And when you contrast that to the, to the Southern tradition. When you contrast that to what Southerners often thought about society and the localism of the South, it didn't mean that there wasn't localism in the North. Of course there was. In fact, you could actually say American nationalism in 1861 was really Northern localism. Northern sectionalism is what was going on there because you had to have one section win. And the North won. The North won the war. Now, you, you've got these current interpretations of history that the South lost the war but won or lost the war, but won the political war overall. The South somehow dominated the United States after the war was over. I don't see it. I don't see it at all. Uh, the entire northern system was foisted on the rest of the United States, political, economic, social. And anything the South tried to do with that, in that, it was always to work against that particular system. So this is the thing that gets me when, when uh, people say that the South somehow won the war. They didn't. The Southern tradition has been trampled. The Jeffersonian tradition has been trampled in America. It's gone in so many ways. And this is why when you have a couple of pieces we had this week, one uh, by Travis Holt, Less Than Five Miles, and the other by Tom Daniel, Appalachian Music and the Phonograph. You see how important Southern culture and, and the Southern tradition is. I love this piece by Travis Holt. I mean, he writes such good stuff. Uh, he is from Arkansas, writes these little pieces about family and growing up in the Ozark Mountains. 
and how important this this was his family member didn't didn't leave the I mean he, he would leave it but it was always those five miles that determined who this man was five miles that was the determining factor of this relative's life and he begins a piece he says the life of a man is something that runs deep in all history before the war on gender roles man and woman had a clear defined boundary that all recognized and respected. Man was the provider and woman, the nurturer and homemaker. The story and role as old as time. But what of the physical boundaries of a man? He says his great-grandfather was born in Bender, Arkansas in 1919. He remained there his entire life with few exceptions. Wayne, as he came to be known, grew up in Vendor in the early part of the 20th century with the normal Ozark way of living. He learned to cut wood and make a living as his fathers did before him. It's not that Wayne's story is atypical, but it's the closest one I have a personal connection to that holds true in an age-old lifestyle and tradition that most have forgotten or purposely overlooked. That's the point. The, the point is, he grew up a typical life in the Ozark Mountains. But now it's become atypical, because most people don't do this. He says Wayne was born at home. Vendor was his home. He grew up near Big Creek at his parents' house and eventually married only about a, a mile from their front porch to a sweet young girl named Hilpy. Edna Middleton. They were married at the Reverend Kane Bowling's home only about a mile from Wayne's place of birth of Bender, near the current junction of Highway 374 and McElroy Gap Road. The chimney still stands to this day. That was on December 20th, 1936. After their marriage, they moved across the road to the top of what is now called Holt Hill by locals and settled in what would eventually in my lifetime become the gardens spot at my great-grandparents' home. They live in a rough, cut log home and continue to live there while my great-grandfather built will become their permanent home. I was told stories of his sitting up at night, hand-carving the wood flooring with his pocket knife and hand-fitting them together slowly, that surely, getting it done. Patience is not only a virtue but a way of life in Wayne. He had no reason to hurry. He had his worries and tasks like any man of his day, but he had a home and a family now. Five children, three boys, and two girls were born to him in Edna. He lived in the house that he finished in 1956 on the top of the hill in Vendor. He would reside there until his death. He was there 14 years after his completion when his father died. He saw him buried in Smith Cemetery, only about a mile distant. Wayne continued his life raising his children and enjoying his grandchildren until tragedy struck on December 20, 1968. His eldest son, Stanley Wayne Holt, and two of his cousins were out on a Friday evening in a 1961 Ford Starliner when some unforeseen circumstance landed it upside down in Big Creek, which wound its way through Vendor and provided the lifeblood for Wayne and his family. However, this night, it would not be a giving force, but a taking one. Wayne found the car washed up against the bank of Big Creek, driver's side up, with some men coming back from a coon hunt that night. It was, sadly, too late for three in the car. A book could be filled with rumors, intrigue, and theories on what happened to land them there, but the fact of it is they died there in Big Creek, not a mile from home. They buried Stanley in the Smith Cemetery, not two miles from where he died. Wayne was a different man in some respects after that, always telling his family to be careful on the roads because it was so dangerous. He was so right. Wayne grew up in the shade of the trees on that hilltop in Bender. He lost a lot of friends but gained a lot of new family in the way of births and marriages. The true meaning of life was something he understood and saw in his lifetime. He saw his lineage continue through his sons and his daughters, both bore fruit and had beautiful children whom he loved dearly. Sundays were an eventful time with him personally calling in when he didn't show up for Sunday dinner and making sure they were all safe. He spent his latter days in the large living room, walking that large hand-fitted floor with a little bit slower gait. He held his grandchildren there, and on one special Christmas, 
opened a ventilated box that contained what would be his last dog, a blue healer he appropriately named Blue. This dog would outlive him by several years and become a watchful companion to Edna as she aged. Wynn never cared much for town, whether it be the small hub of Jasper or the large one of Harrison. His grandkids laughed at how you could bribe him into going to town by giving him R.C. and a pack of M&Ms. They claimed he would sit there all day if you just did that. However, town was too far from Wayne's home, and he never was comfortable there. Wayne died in Harrison, Arkansas on June 19, 1998, after a valiant battle with cancer far from his home. It was about 30 miles away. People today in the age of cheap and easy transportation too often forget the importance of place, especially the place where one was raised, the place where one lived, loved, and lost. My great-grandfather lived a life once common, now sadly atypical. The moments of his life from his birth, marriage, home, and burial all encompassed less than five square miles. To be sure, he spent time out of that area, working and going to town, but these were not the things that defined his life. He lived where he died, a monument to a tradition that we all should try and adhere to, if possible. Without probably even thinking of such a thing, my great-grandfather embodied the mountaineer spirit. He was raised, married, and lived within earshot of his close kin. He saw them out of this world and was saw out of this world in kind by his own. He rests in his overalls within a mile of his birthplace, the home he built, and where he was married, all three. There is a deep lesson here for all those who are willing to listen. And I agree. Uh, people are from somewhere. It's something that Southerners often ask. You know, you're, you're from somewhere. Where are you from? And they'll ask what you do. They ask where you're from because that defines, in many ways, who you are. Because culture means something. Political culture, the culture of an area, all that means something. And when you read the piece that Tom Downer wrote about Appalachian music and where this came from, and he, the first part of the piece is what I like the most. And, of course, he gets into the music and how, you, how it's played, but uh, there's a part of it at the beginning here. He says, In the late 19th century, romantic composers were driven by nationalism as a means to advance their art. Uh, he says that Russian composers, for example, studied work songs, play songs, love songs, church hymns, nursery rhymes in order to grasp what scales were used, what rhythms were used, what harmonies were favored, and what generally contributed to an identifiably Russian sound. They then used these discoveries as a compositional tool to connect their original musical creations back to the folk music that inspired it. As a result of this process, the Musicologist became a valued commodity to romantic composers as a person who literally wandered the countryside and collected folk songs albeit collected meant writing down the music by hand in sheet music notation. Some musicologists, like Percy Granger, became composers themselves and used their own catalog of collected folk music as inspirations for original compositions. And this is before the, before the phonograph. This is the only way you could, live performances, the only way you could do it. The actual sound couldn't be captured and stored with any practicality until Thomas Edison's phonograph. The phonograph allowed the actual sound of any musical performance to be captured, stored, and replayed at the listener's convenience and often as often as desired. This is truly revolutionary, and it is. The things that we have today that we, you know, the iPod and, uh, you know, on digital music, all these things, it's just another way to store music. Storing music changed everything. Storing sound. One of the things that I wish we could have, for example, is a sound of George Washington's voice or Thomas Jefferson's voice. What do they sound like? We, we, have, we can venture guesses based on 
accents and other things and what people have said about them. But what do they actually sound like? That's something that's, of course, lost. But is there ever any way to collect that, to find it? It'd be so good. Tom continues, American folk music was an untapped motherload of potential in the early 20th century, and although it depended on the foreign lands where its immigrants originally came, the music quickly grew outside the box and developed its own unique directions and sounds. Nowhere was this development more pronounced than in the South, and nowhere were the, were the primary source sounds more intact than in Appalachia. British musicologist Cecil Sharp spent the years between 1916 and 18 wandering through Tennessee, North Carolina, Kentucky, and Virginia collecting folk songs notating them all by hand and listening to dozens of local legendary performers. He published his findings with the observation that there were more authentic British folk songs in Appalachia than in Britain. By the way, it has recently become progressively fashionable to denigrate Cecil Sharp for being a nationalist and dismiss his work as being culturally insensitive. To naively misunderstand romantic nationalism is to stupidly reject the entire romantic movement in art. He did nothing different than the Norwegian composer Edvard Grieg, who identified and exploited connections between Norwegian folk music and folk tales with his own original Norwegian compositions. He did nothing different than the Hungarian composer Bela Bartók, who simultaneously wandered the Hungarian landscape looking specifically for Hungarian folk songs to catalog and use in original compositions. He did nothing different than every musicologist who specialized in one specific area of ethno-music. Sharp was openly, admittedly, and unashamedly seeking specific connections between Appalachian music and traditional Scotch-Irish music not musical global diversity. That was the whole point. I love that paragraph because it, it puts into place this thing that we have now, which is, you know, you have some type of, these people are all bad because they're nationalists or because they're uh, looking to enrich the culture of the people at hand. But of course, what happened after this is New Yorkers got involved and then they brought a phonograph. They brought recording materials to the South, and they recorded everything they could, and that changed it. Because as he says, music is a, re is a performance art, and once you could hear it, it wasn't just writing it down, but you could hear how people played it. That was the important part, to hear how people played it. And he gets into the music, the instruments of Appalachian music. One of them is a banjo, which now is considered to be traditional Scots-Irish music, but it's not. It, it was brought over there. It was originally here and brought over there. But of course, music is such an important part of uh, Southern culture and the Southern tradition. You have to have it. I mean, music, literature, art. These are things that really define food, define the South. And when you listen to the Carter family, for example, and uh, you listen to this fiddling John Carson, you hear it. When I listen to the Fiddle and John Carson song, I hear, of course, as, as Cecil Sharp heard, I hear the old world in that particular tune. I can hear it. Uh, the Carter family has got a little more American sound to it. But regardless, this is really good stuff. And, uh, you know, uh, it's just, it's great to have this type of material on our website because of the importance of the Southern tradition and music in the Southern tradition. All right. Well, that's it for this week and review at the Abbey Valencia. I hope you enjoyed it. Until next time, good day. <laughs>